How are we doing today? Good. That's positive enough for me. Um, so next week we are going to be out at the park, and so want to encourage you at 9:30 we're going to have a, a short 30-minute praise worship service before uh, David and Tisha Laughlin uh, come and, and uh, do a uh, what we believe is going to be a really spectacular uh, illusion show filled with the gospel, and their whole family gets in, involved. Um, and so I really want to encourage you, bring your lawn chairs, bring your family, your friends, and uh, just come and have a great time. Um, and also, if you can, uh, Michael, how many people have you got signed up to help you uh, clean up afterwards? You haven't looked yet, so you're not concerned about it. Okay, good, good. Uh, we always have a great crowd of people that come and help us get set up, but when the day's over, you know, we're all tired, people scatter, and uh, we need a few people uh, to see Michael um, or sign up in the foyer on the sheet that just says, hey, I'll stick around and help out, tear down tables, tents, whatever, and uh, bring it back to the church, get cleaned up. We'd love to have you uh, help us with that. Also, really quick, um, in a couple weeks, since we're not here in the church um, on next Sunday, uh, this is kind of like our last big push to get you signed up for Wednesday night classes, which are coming up in, uh, like, pretty soon. So we need to order books, we need to get our rooms assigned and all that stuff. Um, if you have not signed up for a class yet, if you are still kind of weighing that out, um, please, you know, really consider that this morning and think about where you want to be um, and uh, get signed up, okay? And then if Wednesday night doesn't work out, we have this new special option that we uh, haven't had for uh, a while, but we have Sunday night. We're going to have a couple study um, that the Power of Prayer, Oswald Chambers, is the book that we're, we're going to be looking at, uh, his uh, prayer book. Uh, one of my favorite authors from all time. Uh, just I, I, I find Oswald Chambers so deep. I mean, I will generally read a page or two, and that's about all I can handle, okay? It's just, he, he goes so deep in the things that he's talking about. Um, and so we're going to explore that um, with uh, uh, Jill and Joy. And so they're going to take us through a study that they wrote on the book. And uh, I'd love to just encourage you, if you need a study, don't have a study, uh, sign up for that one as well. All right, so that's it for me for the announcements, my most hated job ever. Um, we're finishing today the, uh, the life and ministry of Paul, and in some sense, you can't really ever finish the life and ministry of Paul. We'll have to come back to Paul's writings over and over and over, uh, but in this series, we're, we're going to conclude with his letters. Um, he has two big areas where God just used him powerfully, um, where he contributed so much to the life of the church. For the last couple of months, we've been covering the book of Acts and how God used him to plant churches and to reach the, the Gentile world with the gospel. And we've just been going through, you know, all the journeys of Paul. And we've kind of saved this last little piece, which is the, a very big piece, but uh, the, the contribution of Paul to the, the scriptures, okay? He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, it's kind of hard to overstate just how much God used him to instruct the church, to help the church, to uh, give us God's word and God's leading in the church for 2,000 years, okay? Not only did he uh, write 13 books that we know of, he also was the main um, apostolic authority behind Luke and Acts, okay? So Luke joins Paul on his mission work, and through his relationship with Paul, the apostolic authority of Paul, but also Paul, I believe, and this is maybe just a personal thing of, of how I've come to understand this, but I believe that because Paul learned the gospel directly from Jesus, this is what Paul says in Galatians, that he learned the gospel directly from Jesus himself. He didn't learn it from any man so all the stories and all the teachings and all the miracles and all the, th all the events of Jesus' life, okay, he learned that directly from God. It was revealed to Paul. Paul transferred that information to Luke. Luke also gathered other information from other people. He did his homework, 
Um, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the authority of Paul as an apostle, all those things that are written in Luke and Acts are mainly uh, things that Paul uh, gave to Luke that were written in Scripture. So you have the 13 letters, you have the two books of Luke, which if you take the books of Luke, this is like boring information, I'm sure you're not really that into it, but it's interesting to me. You see how excited I get about this stuff? Okay, so Luke, if you look at Luke and Acts, the content of those two books is, if you take just the words that are written, is about a third of the New Testament. It's a major influence in Scripture in the New Testament. So, so you have 13 books of Paul that we know that he wrote in letters for, to churches or individuals. You have the two books from Luke. And then you have, potentially, and there's a little bit of discussion about this, but the, the book of Hebrews may or may not have been written by Paul. Um, the discussion um, about that is, is interesting. People have different ideas, different opinions about it. Some of you, how many of you have heard that Paul wrote Hebrews? That's not very many. How many of you know who did write Hebrews? <laughs> That's nobody. Okay. So Hebrews uh, was written anonymously. Okay. The, the, the book of Hebrews was written anonymously. And that for some people is like, oh, I, that, that's kind of concerning almost. Like, that's strange. Like, that book was written anonymously. Maybe it doesn't have much authority if it was, you know, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, how many of you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts were all also wrote, written anonymously? Now, I've told the church this many times over the years, so the fact that only two people raised their hand is very alarming to me. Not really, because we, we miss that. Um, we, because we have their names all over those books, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We, obviously, those are the people that wrote them. What we did was we studied and for, through internal evidence and, and through uh, church history, we came to the conclusion that those were the authors of those books and we put their names on those books. And so now we have no question that those are the authors of those books. Um, and some of that kind of causes some people to have a little bit of a hiccup in their, their faith, maybe, I remember um, when I was young, you know, I, I read the Bible and, and I went to church and I went to a Bible college and it wasn't until I went to seminary that I learned, and, and I'm, I may be just a little more clueless than the average person, okay? I, I accept that that's a possibility, but I did not know until I got to seminary. Seminary is master's school for pastors, okay, in case you're not aware of that. And so I went to seminary, and they said, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John were all written anonymously. I'm like, what? I did not know that. It was, a, it was news to me. Um, Hebrews was also written anonymously. But here's the thing. There are a bunch of books of the Old Testament that were written anonymously as well. Okay? Uh, Judges, uh, Ruth, Esther, uh, Job, 1st, 2nd uh, Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, all written anonymously. We don't know the, the authors of those books. We can kind of maybe think we, we could discover the names, but they didn't say, this is, you know, Jeremiah writing this book to you. We don't have that. Um, and I say Jeremiah because we believe Jeremiah wrote um, First and Second uh, Chronicles. Uh, no, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Are you lost yet? Okay. So, we have this, this thing, okay, going on in, in our scripture where it's okay that people wrote anonymously. The, the Jewish people always had books of the Bible that they did not know who the authors were. In the New Testament, we have a bunch of books that we didn't necessarily have the author writing their name in it, and that was okay. Now, here is why, now that I've thoroughly confused you, but here is why Hebrews may or may not have been written by Paul. Number one, why we argue that it was not written by Paul is because we have 13 letters of Paul that we know were written by Paul. He put his name on them, okay? He signed them. So it would be unusual that he would write another letter that is out of character with the other letters that he wrote that he put his name on. One letter that is anonymous and 13 that he signed, right? That'd be like unusual. That's inconsistent. Uh, so there's that. The other thing is that we have with Paul... 
that he is the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, not necessarily to the Jews. He, he calls himself that. So his, his ministry, he knows, is to the Gentile people. But when you read Acts, you also know that Paul always went to the Jewish people with the gospel before he went to the Gentiles. He always went to the synagogue. He always went to the Jewish people with their history, their heritage, their culture, and he tried to, to convince them of the reality of the Messiah before he went to the Gentiles. So it's not really inconsistent with Paul uh, to reach out to the Jewish people. Um, but here's the thing. Why Paul may have written Hebrews anonymously is that Paul, and I said this last week, was not really popular with Jewish people, right? In fact, they kind of hated his guts. And not just the Jewish people who weren't believers, but the Christian Jewish people had a little bit, if not a lot of bit, suspicion about Paul because they thought maybe he was trying to undermine their heritage, their culture, their law, their, their scripture, etc. because he was telling people that we have freedom in Christ. And to them, it was like, well, I don't know if I can really trust you. So it may be that Paul followed some other uh, philosophy of ministry that he himself wrote, which was, I have become all things to all people so that I might reach some, that he may have said, I'm going to take the offense out of the book, the offense of my own name, in order to reach the Hebrew people with the truth of who the Messiah is. That doesn't prove anything. We don't know for sure. I, I would say it's strongly um, points to that Paul did write it. It sounds like Paul. It looks like his writing. It, it goes along with a lot of his, his other teachings. Um, and there's a good reason to believe that he probably wrote it. In fact, the early church believed that he wrote it. Um, and we have since then kind of argued against that. There's no other really good candidate for the author of Hebrews uh, that I know of. Regardless, doesn't matter. You guys ready to start the sermon? <laughs> so this is all I want to tell you. Paul's writings, his letters, his contribution are so huge. Okay, take Hebrews out of it, even take Luke and Acts out of it, and his contribution is so huge. What God has done, what he has spoken, what he has revealed through Paul is so immense that we could easily spend the rest of our lives just digging into what Paul wrote in his letters and never come to the end of it, okay? Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a, a bird's eye view, and I t I, I've said this about the whole series. We're going to take a bird's eye view of his, his letter writing in general, okay? Not even a 30,000-foot view, more like a 60,000-foot view of the whole thing. We're just going to dive into a few areas uh, of uh, understanding application of Paul, the letter writer. So we're going to pick it up in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to pick it up at the end, okay? This is the last thing that Paul writes. Uh, it's his last letter. It's his last um, piece of, of really charging Timothy, his protege, uh, with, with the emphasis of what he is to do in ministry. Uh, we're going to pick it up at the end, and then we'll kind of go back and understand kind of the whole point of what Paul is trying to do in his writing. So let's stand as we read God's word this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, do this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths as for you always be sober-minded endure suffering do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry for i am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. And Lord, we, uh, we do love your appearing. We thank you that you came as a baby 2,000 years ago to live a human life in complete submission to your Father, in complete obedience to be a sacrifice to uh, fulfill all the prophecy, all the law, all the writings of the Old Testament, everything that was portrayed in the Word about what it is that a, a person has to do, you did. You did for us so that we could have grace. We thank you that uh, you made that grace available to someone like Paul, who uh, became one of, one of your great missionaries, one of your great apostles, uh, one of the great contributors to your word. And Lord, we learn so much from that, but we also learn that we are included in that, that we are brothers with Paul, but even more importantly with Christ, that we have um, to fulfill our ministry, that we need to win, fin finish the, the race that you've set before us, that we need to uh, continue to keep the faith, Lord, in our day. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, by your power, we would do just that. Teach us how, Lord, today, as we open up your word again, show us uh, what it means for us in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is the, like I said, the last thing that Paul writes to Timothy. Um, let me give you just a little bit more historic background. How many of you love history? Okay. How many of you raised your hand just to be nice to me? A few. Okay, thank you. So, um, what you understand from Paul's letters is that he wrote half of his letters uh, during his missionary journeys, okay? And then the other half he wrote from prison or after prison. You say, well, what do you mean after prison? Acts 28, uh, what happens is that we see that Paul has gone to Rome to uh, be on trial before Emperor Nero. Now, he writes uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from that Roman jail. And then history tells us and tradition tells us and Eusebius, the early church historian, tells us he wrote during the time of Constantine around 317. Okay, he wrote the whole church history from Acts until his day. He said that Paul argued before Nero effectively to the, uh, to the point where Paul was released. And, and the reason why was because Nero, before he became insane, okay, he was not that mean to Christians. So Paul, we know from Acts, was not really guilty. Festus and King Agrippa both said, he's not guilty. He does not need to be in jail. He does not deserve to die. He should be released, but he appealed to Caesar. And so what history says is that Paul went to Caesar, he argued his case, and he was released. So after he was released, history says, tradition says, he went into Spain, did some more mission work, and he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus, and then he was rearrested and brought back to Rome, and then he wrote 2 Timothy, and then he was beheaded. And he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen, and that is the Roman privilege to be executed without pain and suffering, okay? Having your head chopped off is, is about as easy as it gets for people to be executed in that day. But that's Paul's story, and that's where he writes 2 Timothy, and here's the internal evidence about that. He says, I've already uh, read this, but it says, For I am already, in verse 6, being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, okay? And then he says, I fought the good fight, I've, I've finished the race, etc. Now, what he says in 2 Timothy is that I know, without a doubt, I'm going to die. I'm done. This is it for me. What he says in Philippians, okay, if you go over to that book, which he writes from a Roman jail, is that um, it's better for me to go be with Christ, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain. I prefer to go to be with Christ, but I know that it's better for you that I remain, and so, therefore, I believe and I know that I will remain, okay? Okay. So what we understand is Paul, as an apostle and a prophet who had revelation from the Lord, knew in, in Philippians that he was going to be released. But in Timothy, 2 Timothy, he says, I'm going to die. You would say, there's something not quite right about that. Either 
he, he's missed the mark on one point or the other, or he wrote Philippians on the first in, imprisonment, and he wrote Second Timothy on a different imprisonment, okay? So that's the history, um, but here's the, the point. Here's what he's trying to tell Timothy. He's, he's done, but Timothy's not. I'm trying to tell you this is what you need to do. He says, um, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, do this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Okay, now that's pretty important. Here's what we're, we were told in seminary and in, in Bible college that that means. Um, make sure if you're not preaching on a Sunday, you got one ready just in case. Right? So Seth, Seth and I have this agreement that um, just in case, you know, something happens to me on Saturday night and I break my arm and I can't be in church for whatever reason, laryngitis or whatever, He's got a sermon in his back pocket. He's ready to go. Okay, so no worries. You don't have to worry about me. Something's going to happen on Sunday morning, no matter what. Now, that's good advice, right? You say that's good advice? Yeah. Is that what that means? Say no. That's not what that's talking about at all. That's, you just twisted that around to, to make your point. Here's what this means. Whether the gospel is popular or not, whether the gospel is approved by people or disapproved, whether the people like it, they don't like it, doesn't, you preach the word, okay? In your time, in your culture, in your situation, in your community, doesn't matter if people like it, they don't like it, they agree with it, they don't agree with it, you preach the word. And in season, when people are in favor, out of season, when people are like, I don't want to hear that stuff. That's what that means. So here's the overview of, of all of Paul's letters, he begins with doctrine, okay? In almost every letter, he's going to spend half of his time teaching the, the truth, the doctrine, the teachings, the, the gospel. And then he's going to move into behavior. How do you apply this? What do you do with this, okay? But first of all, you have to get the doctrine right. What is the gospel? He says later there's coming a time, and this was happening in his day too, in different times, cultures, pockets of people. It just depended. But in our day, you say this is happening a lot. People uh, won't really uh, endure sound teaching. They won't put up with sound teaching, right? But they have itching ears. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear anything that makes them uncomfortable. It, this is a season where people aren't necessarily, generally speaking, in favor of the gospel. But what is right doctrine? What is true doctrine. What is the truth? And here's what the truth is. You've got to go back to Genesis. You have to understand all of Scripture. What is all of Scripture saying? In order to have a handle on what any particular thing says, you have to know what the whole thing says. Would you agree? Okay. So here's what the whole thing says. Genesis chapter 1, God created. It is God who made. And why did he make the earth and the universe and the stars and then people is because he intended to and wanted a relationship with you and me. That was his purpose. That was his goal. That was his intention, a relationship with you and me. And he had a perfect relationship with Adam and Eve until chapter 3, what entered into the situation? Sin. Okay? Sin separates you from God. Sin separates the human race, every single human being, from a right relationship with God. And so the whole rest of the story of the Bible is God's activity and God's work and this, all the stories of God working to restore the relationship with his people. That's what all the scripture is about. So when you take the Old Testament, you see the laws and the sacrifices and, and all the patriarchs and all the prophecies about the Messiah, everything that he's doing in the Old Testament, all of it is pointing to God's final absolute solution, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so what Jesus does is he lives a perfect life, he dies a sacrificial death, he rises from the dead by his own power, and he rules and reigns at the right hand of his Father, and he is coming again. That's the gospel. So what that means is that your biggest problem, my biggest problem is sin. Jesus solves our problem, and he's the only solution to the problem. God says that he is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. No other way. Okay? So... That's the basis of what the whole Bible is about. This is the, the basis of what right doctrine, true doctrine is about. True doctrine, teaching, just means this is what God has revealed. This is what God has said. 
It doesn't matter what I think about it. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It's not the most academic, you know, caring part of, of the, the literature. It is what has God said? What does he intend? And this is the truth, and this is, this is what Paul is saying, that there are other things that are competing with that doctrine. There are times when people are not going to put up with this idea. So what are the two competing things? I'm just going to tell you. There are basically two others, and there may be thousands of others. Okay, There may be many, many others. But Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that there's a competing doctrine. It's the doctrine of men. And he says, uh, Mark 7, verse 7, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave, he's talking to the religious people, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So, here's the, the problem that you and I face on a regular basis. And I have to be careful about this because I, I do not want to sound like our church is better than another church, okay? Um, there are many great churches in this community, in this world, okay? What tends to happen here is that people will come from other traditions, other churches, other places, and I hear this constantly, okay? And I'm sure you've heard it too. They come here, they hear the gospel, and they say they've grown up in church. They've grown up going to church every week for their whole life, and then they come here as adults and they say, I've never heard this before. I've never heard that I need to be saved before. I've never heard the gospel before. And we're thinking, you know, as a congregation, like how on earth have you been to church your whole life and you never heard this before? Isn't this the, the thing that we're supposed to be talking about every single week? Right? I mean, this is what we're about, like helping people to understand that they need to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in him? Like, how do you go to church and not hear that? That the doctrines of men is this issue where we, we replace the gospel of Jesus with religious ceremonies and sacraments and sacred things. And, and I don't even know. I mean, we're so far apart from that. I mean, we're, we're to a fault apart from that. I mean, we, we do not have enough religious activity going on in our church. I'm saying that kind of sarcastically, maybe. I don't know. There are probably some things that we should do as traditions and things that are meaningful that we, and the problem is me, it's, it's just that I, I am so fearful of a religious tradition replacing a, an actual relationship with God that I, I refuse to, to get bound up in things that we have to do just because they're a tradition for us. And that can be a problem, okay? I'm admitting that that can be a problem because we probably don't have enough things that we do regularly, meaningfully, that could inspire people, you know. But what we ultimately want is a heartfelt, personal relationship with Jesus with nothing in the way of it. That, this is what they were dealing with in the, in the Jewish culture at this time with the religious leaders. They had created so many structures and formalities and rituals and ceremonies. I mean, they had created so many things that they had lost the whole intention that God had put into why he created them, which was to have a relationship with them. And all those things piled up and they blocked their personal relationship with God. But they thought because we were doing all these things that we we're okay with God. And this is the human, I don't know, what is it? it it's something we default to. We, just, we create structures because they're more comfortable for us than the need to actually have a relationship. And so churches today have done that one way or another, okay? That's the tradition of men. There's another one, um, probably not our biggest problem, okay, um, the traditions of men, as much as this other one. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, uh, doctrine or teaching of demons. And this is what it says um, over in 1 Timothy chapter 4. says, now the Spirit expressly says that in uh, latter times, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Um, the, the doctrine of demons, the doctrine of Satan, okay, is counterfeit gospel. What that means is um, because the gospel is very clearly that we are made in God's image, God loves us, wants a relationship with us, he, he made it possible through his son Jesus Christ uh, that what Satan wants to do is to probably do one of two things. First of all, create a counterfeit sense or type of salvation. That would be generally either another religion. How many other religions are there? Okay. And I hesitate to say this because it just sounds really bad in a way, uh, but it is true. But any religion, any other faith or teaching that doesn't point you to Jesus is satanic. I mean, we can say, well, they worship the same God, they believe in the same God, but if they, if they remove Jesus from the equation, then that religion is leading you to hell, which is exactly what Satan wants, which is exactly opposed to what God wants. And that's a hard thing to say because we don't want to, you know, villainize other, other well-meaning people who are thinking that they're believing in something that is true. Um, but the reality is, there is no other way to heaven. And if God's people don't understand that, then they're going to devolve into this idea that all paths lead to God, which is a sat another satanic teaching. Universalism, that uh, any religion will get you there, that whatever you believe is good for you, and, and it's all fine and dandy, and maybe God created all kinds of different ways to get to heaven. You don't find that in Scripture, you find that in culture. Okay, that's what the culture wants you to believe because that's what Satan would love for everyone to believe. Let's all just get along. Whatever you believe is fine for you. Whatever they believe is fine for them. And God's all good with it. And he's not. He's a God of truth. He's revealed the truth. And the, the truth leads us to Jesus. And that's it. That's one area of demonic teaching. The other area of demonic teaching um, has to do with a whole other set of cultural issues, which is that there is no such thing as sin. What's our big problem? What's dividing us from God? Sin. So all, all Satan has to do is convince people that you're not sinners. You, you don't have a problem. You don't have an issue. You don't, there's, no, there's no disconnect between you and God. There's nothing that you're doing that he's displeased with. You're good people, right? Pollyanna. I tried watching that movie one time. It, it's horrible. I don't know how that became a cultural phenomenon. But the idea that Everybody's good, and all we got to do is try to emphasize the good, and everything would be fine, right? Well, the problem is, look at the world. All the evidence that you need is right in front of your face. Why do we have laws? Why do we have people in prison? Why do people commit crimes? Why do people die? Why do, why do bad things happen? Why, why even the people that you like and the people that you are friends with will do the wrong thing? Like, is that because we're all good people or is it because we're all sinners trying to figure it out? So a demonic teaching is we're all good, there's no sin, everybody's going to heaven and it's just going to be fine. Satan would love the world to believe that and unfortunately he's been... It wasn't a hard sell because most people want to believe that anyway. Okay? This is why preaching God's word, he says, you, you have to whether it's in season or out of season, make sure you preach the word. Don't stop. Don't hesitate. Don't hold back. Sometimes you, you have this sense like, oh, they, people can't handle this right now. They're not going to like it. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of things that I'm going to say in the next 10 minutes that you're not going to like. But by the grace of God, the whole thing is not trying to beat you up. The whole thing is trying to get you in a deep, personal, sincere, authentic relationship with God. Paul starts with doctrine. It always has to start with doctrine. What do you believe? Do you believe the gospel? Do you understand the truth? And then from there, he'll always move into the other area of behavior. Here's what we know for a fact. In Scripture, there is never never a disconnect between belief and behavior. Never a disconnect. 
You behave as you believe. That's what Christianity is, okay? That's what, what it means to be a biblical Christian. As you understand what God is saying about himself and what he's, he's said about who we are, then he says, put it to action. Walk in a, in a manner worthy of your calling. Do what you know. Un, apply what you have heard, okay? Th this is what scripture always teaches us. The fact that we have so far removed ourselves from that um, in our day, I think, is, is a, uh, a disease of cheap grace. It's just God loves you, and this is true. God does love you, and God forgives you. It's true. God forgives you, and then, but we miss the, the whole thing in the middle there, which is that when you receive Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. He convicts you of sin. You repent of sin, and then this cycle keeps you in a right relationship with God that as I understand the right doctrine, he's telling me the truth about life and who he is and his righteousness and my sinfulness and the process to make sure that I'm connected with him through repentance, through forgiveness, and this cycle just goes on and on and on to make me mature. But that process for a lot of people just sounds too hard. So I'm just going to accept Jesus, he's my savior, and then I'm going to go and do what I want. And he'll forgive me because he's a loving and gracious God. And what you're going to end up with is a lot of discipline and eventually probably judgment. I just told you, you're going to hear something you didn't like in the next 10 minutes. I guess it was more like two minutes. Let me, uh, let me show you what I mean. First Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 13. He says, uh, formerly, this is Paul talking to Timothy, okay, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, okay, to the church, to Jesus Christ. He said, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. I received mercy because I, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And here's what you understand is that when you behave wrongly out of ignorance, then God has a lot of compassion for that. Okay, he, he understands like you didn't know better. You didn't, you're still guilty, <laughs> but, but, but he understands you didn't know better and so he's, he has mercy for that. But when you act disobediently with knowledge. Now you're simply rebelling. And when you're in rebellion to God, and he's a loving father and he does care for you, but what we understand is that because he is a loving father, he will discipline you. Right? And the word tells us that no father will refuse to discipline their child if they're out of bounds. That's what a loving father does, and God will do that with us. And you will get smacked, not necessarily by God being vindictive, but because of the nature of sin itself. God warns us, this sin leads to this consequence. He's told you over and over and over. If you refuse to accept his teaching and his warning and his encouragement, then what he says is, okay, you want the result of your sin? Then here you go. And you're going to feel the entire weight of it. And you're going to be crushed by it. And at some point, if you'll either do one of two things. You'll either cry out to God, God, forgive me, please help me, save me. Uh, I'm sorry, and I agree with you, this was wrong, and grace will abound. Or you'll say, God, I don't agree with you. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. And you're going to continue to be crushed by that sin to the point of you're being led away into destruction. This is what I'm talking about, judgment. Paul says that some will escape by the skin of their teeth as if through a fire. And maybe that's what he's talking about, that perhaps, and, and I'm struggling with this even in my own brain right now, okay, but maybe, maybe they will just barely escape into heaven by the skin of their teeth with nothing to show for their life. That, maybe that's possible. 
But the reality is that when you know the truth, you are responsible to then apply it to your life. How does that happen? How, how do you, anybody have enough willpower to say, okay, I got it, I'm just going to do it all. Okay? Here's what I think the other thing that he's saying in 1 Timothy 1 is really about. He said, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Jesus ministered to sinners. He spent time with sinners. And when I say sinners, obviously everybody was a sinner. But people like prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and etc. And what he said was really interesting. He said, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of head of, uh, head of the religious. Why? And here's what I believe. And, and there's another story where the, the woman pours the, the perfume on his feet and remember this story? And she's crying and she's washing his feet and she's kissing his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair and the Pharisees sitting there saying if, if he'd have known who this was, he wouldn't let her near him. And what did he say? Those who love much, forgiven much. Love little, forgiven little. There's mercy for those who are wrong because they're ignorant, but they love the Lord. And God has compassion. They're still lost, okay? They need to know the truth, and they need to receive the truth, and they need to get right with the Lord. But he has compassion, and he'll bring them close. This is what I think is happening with Paul when he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He loved God. When you look at Paul's passion for God, his desire to serve God, he was wrong because he didn't accept Jesus, and he was trying to kill the church. But he loved God. And so Jesus approached him strongly, but with mercy. Why, why are you persecuting me, Paul? And I think Paul broke at that moment. He loved God. He did not realize that what he was doing was against God. And when he realized in that moment that what he was doing was against God out of ignorance and unbelief, it broke him, and he came to a right belief and a right understanding. But it was all founded by his love for God. Here's the process. Right belief leading to right behavior motivated by love. Motivated by love for God. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, I can know all the mysteries. I can, I can speak all the prophecies. I, I can give my body to be burned in the fire. But without what? Without love, it's all meaningless. It, it actually earns me nothing because I can't buy my way into heaven. I can't serve my way into heaven. I can't even believe my way into heaven. Even, I've said this so many times, you're probably sick of it. Even the demons, what? Believe and shudder. It's not just believing. It's not just behaving, and it's not just loving. There's something about the connection of these three things together that makes a Christian a Christian. That forms what it means to, to be a saved person who is actually walking with the Lord. But under it all and through it all and motivating it all has to be a love relationship with God. Remember from the very beginning, right? He made us to have a relationship with us. Let me tell you two last things, good news and bad news, okay? The bad news is this. First John says, how do you know what, that you love God? How do you know that? I could ask you, do you love God? Felicia, you love God? Absolutely. Karen, you love God? Kurt? Anybody going to say they don't love God? Just raise your hand and we'll have prayer service for you afterwards. So how do you know? I can say it all day long. I say it every time I pray, God, I love you. I, it, it ne I never fail to say, I love you, Lord. I love you. And every time I'm talking to the Lord, I'm telling him I love him. But how do I know? You know, First John says that 
If you love me, you will what? Obey me. You love God, you'll obey him. If you're, how do you obey him? Guess what he says? Does anybody know? How do you obey God? You walk in love. Oh, okay, that solves it. It's not a how-to, it's this is how you know. And so here's what I'm saying. You have a belief. We all do. We have a, an understanding. I hope that you have a clear understanding of true doctrine, okay, right teaching, what the gospel is. I hope you have that. You, you should have it today if you didn't have it before. Then you have your life, your, your lifestyle, your behavior, the things that you do, how you apply what, whatever you believe, okay? However close or far your behavior is from your belief, how consistent or inconsistent, okay? That is the measurement. That is the metric. That is the gauge for how you know how much you love God. If you are acting in contradiction to what you say you believe, then the gap is how much you do not love God. I told you I was going to tell you some things you didn't want to hear. Whatever, however big that gap is, is the gap of how much you should love God and don't. And here's the thing. Okay, that's the bad news. All that is is for you to, to understand in your, your own life, how close am I? in my, my relationship with God, how close am I? If it's pretty far, then I got, a, I got some work to do. I need to let the Holy Spirit convict my heart of some sin and say, God, I'm sorry, and start getting my life back on track. You're not going to ever get it perfect, but you can get it better. Amen? And guess what? That won't save you. All it will do is bring you a little closer in your relationship with God. Here's the positive thing. You ready for something positive? God wants your friendship. Do you know that? He wants your friendship. He created you to be his friend. He, he designed you to be his friend. He's done everything in his power for, for us to be his friend. We have the ability and we have the opportunity to be his friend. He, he is calling you, encouraging you, beckoning you into a friendship with himself. It's not about a religion, it's not about a bunch of practices, not about a bunch of moral codes, okay? All those things are all intended to bring you into a close personal walk with Jesus Christ. You and I have to build a friendship with God. I, I can tell you how I do it. I, I don't know how helpful that'll be. You have to ask yourself, am I in a friendship with God? Do you know what a friendship looks like? We all do, right? Even if we haven't had a friend in a while, we had one when we were kids at least. It's communication. It's honesty. It's spending time together. It's listening. It's understanding. It's enjoying your fellowship. It's a friendship. Do you have that with God? Nobody can answer that but you. You, but I'm telling you, that's what he wants. You take that as your motive for believing and for behaving, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to become a mature Christian person. Amen? God, we love you. Help us to act it, not just say it. Help us to seek it, um, not just make it seem that way. Lord, we, we want to know you. We want you to know us. We want to have a close relationship. We want to know the truth. We want to live the truth. We want to express that truth to other people. God, we pray that that love would become our identity. It's one thing to, to have all the right beliefs. We can, we can believe all the right things and, and be uh, still far from you. We can think that we love you and still be far from you. God, would you help us to make sure that all those components, right doctrine, right behavior, and a 
founded by and, and undergirded by love in our relationship with you. God, would you bring those three together to make us whole? You know, I was thinking about if we were to say a human being is a brain, a heart, and a body, which one could we do without? <laughs> it's just this, it's an absurd question. And as believers, God, there's, we can't do without any one of these things. We can't do without believing correctly or behaving in consistently with, with our belief, and we can't do without love. We have to have them all. So wherever we're off, bring us back. Wherever we've missed, Lord, help us to get it on track. And we'll just give you all the praise. Thank you that we can worship Thank you that we can honor in response to what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you this morning that, as I have said, and as you already know, okay, I don't even need to tell you this, but sin separates us from God. Sometimes it's just a matter of saying, okay, i got to name that thing, and i got to intentionally lay it on the altar and say this is what is keeping me from a right relationship with God it's a, it's a wrong behavior it's a wrong relationship it's a wrong activity it's something I'm doing or not doing that's just I know that that is keeping me from being close to God and if God is impressing that on your heart I cannot do it I cannot convince you of it the Holy Spirit has to convict your heart about it but if he's convicting your heart and you know it then just come and lay that thing down. The, the altar was always a place for something to die, and in our day, it's a place for our sin to be slain. Not as a gift, but as a sacrifice. Okay? I'm just going to encourage you, if you need to come, and, and maybe it's sin in general, you've never accepted Jesus, and you need to receive him as your Savior. It's just like, I don't even know all the things, I just know it's sin is keeping me from God. Bring it to the altar, confess it to the Lord, in your heart, and let him do his saving work. Amen? Let's stand and sing.